Candy Gourlay is an acclaimed author in the UK where she has been based for the past 34 years. She started out in the Philippines as a journalist. She covered the Marcos dictatorship and the People Power Revolution, among other events, in the 1980s. Since she began writing fiction, uh, Candy has for years been one of the most successful Filipino authors overseas. Uh, she has written four novels and has a new one out, Wild Song, about an overlooked episode in Philippine history, the St. Louis World's Fair in 1904 in the United States, uh, where Filipino tribal people were, were displayed like circus acts or like um, animals in, in a zoo. One British critic has called Wild Song a stunning achievement. Magandang araw sa'yo, Candy Gourlay. And uh, congratulations uh, on this stunning achievement. Salamat. Magandang gabi to you because it's daytime here. It's nighttime <laughs> over there. You're based in I London. I am based in London, yes. Well, Candy, no, uh, before we talk about your successes, let's talk about rejection. Uh, you have written about this. You've been quite open about it. Uh, you've been sharing lessons uh, from uh, about your struggles as a writer. Um you were you 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 have said that you were you suffered through nine years of rejections, no? Uh, trying to get your first novel uh, published. No, tell us about that, no? Um, uh, what wh what did what did it feel like being rejected over such a long period of time, and and why didn't you give up? I I think when I when my kids were small and I started reading books to them, you know, you you begin to discover children's books and. At that time, I had no idea that children's books were so good because I used to, you know, the children's books that I knew from my childhood were not terribly, were not terribly great. I mean, there were some outstanding ones, but in general, it was kind of um, hit and miss. There were some good ones or some bad ones, and there was there were no Filipino, uh, there were no Filipino children's books that I knew of growing up. So when I started to have children and read my books to my children and discovered the quality uh, of books, I was just, I was just, I thought, well, I can do this. It was my dream for many <laughs> years from since I was a kid to write children's books. When I was a kid, I fell in love with reading. I still remember the day I, I read my first book and the feeling was so huge that the hairs rose on my arm, my arms. And I thought, Oh my God, this is amazing. I can, you can open a book and you can go anywhere you want. It was such a magical experience that I thought that's what I want to be. When I grow up, I'm going to become a person who writes books that makes children feel like that. But then, you know, life got in the way and there was actually no publishing in the Philippines. So I became a journalist instead. And being a journalist was fun, but it wasn't really the kind of writing I wanted to do. Um, and when I finally ended up in the in England, you know, England is the center of world publishing. And I realized that uh, this is where I could make a mark. I could start writing children's books. And I started to research. I went to the bookstores. And when you go to the bookstores in those days, there was not a single brown face in the books. You know, it was all the books had white English children. Um, and so, of course, that was the kind of book I wrote. So for nine years, I was creating, first of all, I started with picture books. You know, picture books are the, the illustrated books. And picture books in the UK are different from the picture books in the US because the picture books in the US have a lot more words. In the UK, it's more limited, more uh, uh, um, maybe like 150 words for a picture book. 
is is enough because the 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 UK publishes to the rest of the world, and so the book has to be translatable, and it was really really hard to get through. There's a way of writing picture books which was not the way I wrote. I think I was very narrative, so I thought, well, maybe I'll write novels because how hard could it be? I was a journalist, so I was I was like, you know, when I was a journalist, I could write two 600 word articles in a day, no sweat, including research payana. So mm-hmm. also, yeah, I'm gonna do that. I, I I started I wrote every day because I had small children. It didn't take me a year. I thought in a year I'll have a book, but actually it took me almost five years to write my first novel because uh I had so much to learn. It turned out it's not like journalism. My, my husband used to say you know in journalism how you have to get to the point right away uh you don't have to do that in a novel you have to withhold facts you have to hide information you don't say it on the first so i i didn't know how to do it and so i had to learn and then the rejection started coming in and you know i could have quit early on because when you've invested that much time you think i you know i don't want to waste any more time it could take even more time um I could have quit, but something kept me going. Initially, I was writing these books with white kids in them. And then a a, a a literary agent got back to me after rejecting me. And she said, you know, I really liked your book. I liked the I liked the idea. It was, had a great idea. It's a time travel novel. Um, you're funny. You know, you're funny. And I love the twist in the end. And I was like, what's this crazy person talking to me about? She's saying she likes the book, but she rejected me in a month. And then she goes, no, the <laughs> problem is... Filipino ka, you're Filipino. And I was like, oh, racism? Is this racism that she's telling me na Filipino <laughs> lang? If you're Filipino, you can only write Filipino stories. And then she said, no, kasi naman, as a literary agent, she's going to represent me to publishers. And here I am, I've written a book about a, an English boy who time travels to an English war in England. Um, where was I in the book? And I was a Filipino author. What was the connection? And I realized I was not a good writer because I was not putting myself into the books. I was co- concocting characters that were inventions. I was trying to imagine what a white person was like, basically. So I thought, Asige, I'll try. I'll write a book with a Filipino character. And I wrote a novel called Volcano Child. And it was the time of uh, the eruption in um, uh, Pinatubo. Mount Pinatubo erupted. And then, so I, I was watching that on the news and I thought, what about if there's a boy who uh, whose mom went to become a maid in London and all he wants is to see his mother again. And he starts to dig a tunnel in the back garden. He's trying to dig a tunnel to the other side of the world to fetch his mother. And then Mount Pinatubo erupts and then his life changes. And, and that took me again a lot of time to write. It was really, really difficult to write because that story is my story. Uh, my um, Not the volcano, because I was not there when the volcano happened, but the story of migration. My father was uh, decided to leave the family and go and work abroad. And uh, we never really knew what he did there. And it was devastating for my family, you know? So uh, it was really hard because my mother took it very hard being left alone. And we were six children in the family. And so I had to kind of suddenly remember all of that and think about that. And and it was hard. It's not write, write uh, what you know, but write who you are. And writing who you are demands a lot more from you. But I discovered in writing that the kind of author I wanted to be. And it was somebody who wrote that, who could write that kind of deep emotional exploration. 
And the mm -hmm. book Volcano Child was rejected. It has never been published. It's in a drawer somewhere. But mm -hmm. the rejections were really nice. I got letters from publishers saying, I love this book. I cried. It moved me so much. And I was like, why are they still rejecting it? And uh, what my uh, somebody explained to me, the thing is, it's a very quiet novel. And um, when you have a first novel, it should be noisy enough, you know, not not it shouldn't be quiet. It should be something that will uh, be noticed by by everybody. And and that will, is where you're going to stay in the in the kid lit permanent permanent. So I, I tried writing more books. And in the end, I found the story of Tall Story, which was my very first book. And it was noisy in the sense that it had a kind of sexy story of a boy who uh, develops gigantism. He's the smallest in his class. He becomes a giant. And of course, because I'm writing about myself, there's the story of separation where his mother becomes a nurse in London. And then there's a story of reunion where they meet again in Heathrow and nobody had any idea that he had uh, turned into a giant. So he steps off the plane and he is a giant. And that's the story of Tolso. And that was my first book. And it was published to acclaim. I mean, I had such great reviews. Yeah. It was shortlisted for nine prizes. Yeah. That, uh -oh. um, the Blue Peter Prize is like one of the biggest prizes in the UK. It was shortlisted for that. And they made a small animation about it. I mean, that was how on TV, it was on TV. Um, and when you went to Waterstones, uh, it was one of the top five books uh, uh, beating Rick Riordan at one point, which was amazing, amazing. So that was like a really good start. So this is back I... in 2010, right? Um, yeah, I I recall my son reading that uh, shortly after it came out. Um, and, uh, well, the main character there is uh, Bernard, Bernardo, right? The the, gi the giant. He grew up to be a, a eight, eight foot tall a Filipino, grew up in a Philippines uh, because of this disease and gigantism. No. And then he he went, he not only was reunited with his mom, but he met his half-sister who was normal size, no? Now basketball fanatic. Anyway. Um, normal size, but because she's half Filipino, she's oh. the smallest in her class. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But she was, she did not have any disease like this guy. <laughs> I was channeling how Filipinos are so, you know, we're so obsessed with our height, right? How small we are. So I yeah. wanted to show like this really small person plays amazing basketball and it's That's okay right. to be small. There, was, uh, there were a lot of kind of thoughts I had about being Filipino at the time I kept, I, that was what I, what was important to me was thinking about how, how I compared and being proud of who I was. So, so why do you think this novel, Tall Story Succeeded and the previous one, your real first novel, but it just it was not it was never published. Um, never made it, no, and it's now lying in some uh, drawer somewhere. To be honest, I think I I had more to learn about writing, and mm -hmm. I was writing in the literary sphere, so it wasn't like uh, there there's there are ways of writing, and that and that book was pitched at a kind of very literary level, but. It wasn't, I think my writing needed improvement to be to be really honest. The other thing was we'd submitted it to publishers who uh, were not interested in uh, quiet uh, quiet novels and literary novels. Um, they wanted com commercial, things that would be commercial, that would make a lot of money for them. Um, and this was clearly not that kind of novel. I, I, I don't think I write that kind of novel anyway. Yeah. Um, Volcano Child did get an offer but by that time, um, Tall Story was already 
had already gotten an offer from Random House. So we decided to turn down the offer for, for Volcano Child because uh, Random House wouldn't like it if there were two books coming out at the same time. Um, and Volcano Child never got taken up after that. I think the most important thing was it was taken on by the right publisher. And I'm not talking about Random House, I'm talking about the imprint that took it on. So there's a, the, the publisher was David Fickling Books, David Fickling, who was an imprint of Random House. And he publishes things like The Boy in the Striped Pajamas. And David Fickling made his name um, discovering authors like Philip Pullman and Jacqueline Wilson. And when he took on the book, he, his reputation was what brought me to the uh, attention of the librarians. And when my book came out, uh, they they really paid attention. And that's why it got shortlisted for all this stuff. And was the most amazing breakthrough because that was what that has continued through my career you know every book that comes out uh the librarians pay attention so that's the key audience huh? the librarians of course no but tra exactly. traditionally uh of course they've been they've always been important but i'm just wondering how important they are in this day and age Divan. and uh there's so many books online uh, uh already when i read your your writing about uh, being uh, getting rejected, I, I I recall well. You know, um, there have been so many famous authors who have who were first rejected before uh, they actually got published. So, um, uh, and I can go through this long list of famous authors who were reject whose first novels were rejected: Agatha Christina, John Le Carre, Ernest Hemingway, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, who are like the giants in our field now. <laughs> It's part of the job. Even when you're, even when you get when you get published now, you have a book now in 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 the bookstores. The you continue to get rejected. So you might write a novel that nobody wants because it's it's a business. The agenda, the number one agenda for publishers to make money. So if they don't see any money in it, they're not going to publish you. Um, and it takes a lot of money to bring a book out. There's a lot. I mean, with with Wild Song, my my latest novel, I signed two hundred. Uh, advanced copies, free copies that were distributed, 200 copies. That's There's a big expense in the the pre-publication stage where that, that the publisher invests in. So a lot of people who are trying to write books, they get really, they take it so personally when they're rejected. And actually, it's really, really important. And this is what I learned when I was being rejected, was when I learned that it was a business. I began to look at my manuscripts from a more business-minded eye. And I realized, well... Yeah, you know, it might be a lovely story, it might be beautifully written, but will they sell enough money to cover their expenses? And maybe the answer is no. Okay, I, I want to ask you something uh, about uh, something else you you said earlier, uh, and this is and this is for the aspiring writers uh, who are listening. No, because um, you said that one critic uh, or one some one person who reviewed your book told you. You know, uh, you should be writing about your own experience, diba? Kasi sabi mo nga, you, you wrote about an English boy uh, in an English setting, etc. But how important is that, ba, for a writer to write about uh, write about topics that are directly related to that person? You know, I mean, writing about, like, if you're Filipino, you should write about Filipinos. You should write about the Philippines. You should write about Filipino heritage, etc., so, so what are your thoughts about that? Do 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 aspiring writers need to need to write about their own selves, their own people, community, culture, heritage? 
okay, to be fair to the literary agent, was a literary agent. She was looking at this as a commercial package and she looked at the book and if she she goes to a publisher to sell it um, and um, and then reveals that it's a Filipino author, this the sale package was not a good package, you know? So she was just saying, how am I going to, how am I going to sell this? Um, although there was a, there was still something wrong with with that. Um, and what I was saying about write who you are is not just write about your experiences, write about being Filipino. I mean, who you are might not be about your heritage. It might not be. It might not be about being Filipino. Who you are might be about being a lonely person, being a uh, someone who's lost, being someone who's searching for something. It's the who you are part of it. It's much deeper than just all of the superficial stuff. For me, um, I, I realized that I was kind of um, hiding the thing because I was deliberately writing about white children because I wanted to be published. So my my intention was to be published. It was not about to create a story that's going to move people. That was not my intention. My intention was I want to get published. Therefore, I will write for the market. And uh, if you are a good person, a good uh, market researcher, you go to the bookshops, you research the bookshops, and then you write like what you see. And I was so my writing didn't feel probably didn't feel unique, and probably felt like everything else. And then there was the problematic thing of me being somebody who was other. And um, and to me, as someone who's trying to get published, it was a risk to become to to represent. As an, a Filipino, it I was thinking about all the people, all the editors opening that that uh, submission package, and then seeing Filipino characters who are so foreign, who are so different, um, and that would be a leap that they would have to take, and it would be my first book. Like, should I take the risk? You know, and will someone take the risk of publishing me? You know, you could see from the from the shops that nobody took risks on. Black people, brown people, you know, people from other cultures. So why would they take a risk on me? So the story would have to be more powerful. So I took a risk on Bern my story about the boy named after Bernardo Carpio, um, and the, the giant, and thought, okay, I'll write about the boy who becomes a giant. Maybe that idea is going to be strong. And then I thought really hard. I really kind of dug deep about in the emotional core of the novel to try to, to think of all the ways that I could move the reader. And I think ultimately people love Tall's story because it has an emotional core that really creeps up on you. Um, and you can feel, if you read it, you can feel my loneliness, my homesickness, how I, I'm yearning for the Philippines. You can feel it in the book that that was what the author was like. And that's really the how I wrote who I was in that book. And it just incidentally happens to be set in the Philippines because that is the logical place that I could set in it, it in. And I, I could comfortably mm -hmm. write about characters. You don't just say, write Filipino. It is, what is the thing? What is the, the wound that you have that you scratch the most? What is the thing that really, really hurts when you think about it? That's what you write about. And you'll be amazed at how it will level you up as a writer. Okay, you, kasi grabe siguro yung competition dyan, you know? Because it is a center of world publishing uh, since since time immemorial, di ba? That's the land of Shakespeare, no? When okay. Harry Potter came out, everybody thought, I can do that. And so the children's <laughs> book world was, everyone was writing a Harry Potter. Yeah. Well, my, 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 my son was one of the avid readers of that. 
that. So <laughs> uh, many of us were really exposed to that. But but you know, um, you did you did write about uh, that difficulty of being an author of color. But when you you were finally published and you you were critically acclaimed, no, for for uh, the tall story, and after that um, you had shine, and then after that you had uh, bone talk. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the critics were were citing um your your subject matter as being like um you know uh, uh rarely written about um you know it was a, like a totally new world for them uh you know you know filipinos filipino characters philippine history um you know the fact that there was a world's fair uh, etc no so so on the one hand, it was difficult because you're author of color, but on the other hand, because you were writing about yourself and your your experiences, your world, your you know this this wound not that that uh, wouldn't go away. Um, it 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 was actually it it seemed to have given you an edge, Niba. I guess it is an edge. Um, can I talk about Wild Song? Um, okay, again. Yeah, because. Uh, Maybe in, in 2005, I was helping a Filipino charity here uh, uh, create a book about Filipinos in London. So we were interviewing Filipinos who lived in London, and then they were all compiled in a, an anthology of stories of Filipinos in London. And then we were trying to put together uh, an, uh, an introduction about, it was uh, written by Ed Maranan. You know Ed Maranan? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he used to live in London. Yes, he did. Yeah, at the time he was the spokesman for the Philippine Embassy. That's right. And he was helping with the book. He was going to write an introduction, and I was looking for photographs to put into his introduction about the history of Filipinos abroad. And so I was like searching, searching for photos, and then I found a photo of Filipinos in the World Fair in St. Louis, Missouri, in 1904, and I was so stunned. I had never seen anything like it. It was of a, an Igorot boy dancing with a very large uh, American woman dressed in Edwardian clothing. You know, the, the fashion of the time was the pigeon silhouette. So she had this very, very cinched in waist and then high neck collar and then gloves, you know, and those were very, very modest days for women. Like, like even married couples didn't hold hands. And yet this was this woman was holding hands with a boy who was half naked. You know, in those days, people wore gloves, so they didn't touch each other, you know. Um, and she was holding hands with this boy. And that was really, really intriguing. It sent me on this this, um, this, this rabbit hole of research where I read and read and read about the World Fair. And it sounded like the most amazing thing. And I thought, oh, I'll write a book about the Filipinos who were taken to the World Fair. If you Google the World Fair, one of the easy things that come up immediately is that the ice cream cone was invented in the World Fair and the hot dog was invented at the World Fair because St. Louis was a very German city, lots of German immigrants. They had Frankfurters. And because you had to walk around the World Fair, they needed to invent a way to walk around carrying their Frankfurters. So they invented the hot dog. And so I thought I'll write a funny story about a Filipino boy in the World Fair. The title will be The Invention of the Hot Dog. And I actually wrote a few chapters of it. And it was going to be younger, you know, middle grade, like that, quite young for nine to, to 11 year olds. And then I thought, OK, now it's time to research some more. So I started to do my research more deeply. I didn't just Google. I started to read books. And, and oh, my God, the story was not what I thought it was. What happened to the Filipinos was 
so shocking and so horrific that I couldn't write a book about the invention of the hot dog. I realized that the book was really enormous. The the topic was so huge and um, and that I would have to understand a lot of things that I actually had not really, uh, that I didn't know anything about. Uh, I, I know about racism, but I didn't know about American racism. I didn't have any, a deep understanding of how that worked. Um, I knew about the Philippine-American war from what I had been taught, but didn't remember anything. And then I realized that if I just wrote a book about the World Fair and the Filipinos in it and what was done to them, my readers, my young readers, especially here in the UK, would come to the book like the people who came to the fair and they would look at the Filipinos in my characters and they would be strange and other and freaky. It would do harm. It would be completely the wrong book to write. And so I thought, okay, I'll have to write another book that leads up to this book. I wrote Bone Talk, which is a play on words. It's a Bone Talk is a play on Bone Talk, which is the setting of the book. And it's set in the Philippine-American War. And it's about a little boy who's growing up uh, in in his village in Bontok and uh, he knows exactly who he is and who he's going to be when he grows up. He's going to grow up to become a warrior like his dad and everything is as it should be and then suddenly along come the Americans and the Americans, his first sight of an American is uh, somebody with skin the color of buffalo milk, hair the color of straw and eyes that are like the sky. I mean they're like monsters and and um, that and that encounters what sets off a series of events that makes him realize because his his want you know and when you write the book it always begins with a, a character's deep desire and the, his deep desire is to become a man and he defines being a man as getting circumcised getting a spear getting a shield becoming like his dad but when all of these events happen his definition of being a man changes. Um, and and that was and so I wrote an entire different book before I ended up with um, with with Wild Song. I had to write it because I felt guilty. And again, you know, I'm talking about risk. It was a huge risk. I mean, who in the UK is interested in the Philippine American War? I mean, I I really felt the risk there that there was the risk of of my characters being exoticized. There was a risk of you know, nobody being interested in this, this bit of history. But I felt like I had to do it. It did get published. Uh, David loved it. And um, it got shortlisted for for the Carnegie Medal, which is like the most amazing thing. I used to read books shortlisted for the Carnegie Medal. And I was, I just, it was unbelievable. And also for the biggest prize here in the UK, which is the Costa Prize, uh, sadly no longer in existence. So that was that what that you know the book is now being studied in in uh, English classrooms, so that's really amazing. Yeah, well, it's uh, well, yeah. Congratulations! Both both books are great achievements. I actually read, as you know, um, uh, Wild Song, which was pub- just published this year, Tamaba, March uh, twenty twenty three. So it's it's very new, but uh, what what surprised me in the in your interviews about it and what you've written about Wild Song is that. Um, uh, you would you had wanted to write it, but you you felt you had to write the 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 prequel first. <laughs> the, you had to write Bone Talk, which sets the stage for it. So before they're all transported to America to be you know to star in this human zoo at the St. Louis World's Fair, you had you had to establish them first in their home village in Bone Talk, where they encounter 
Americans for the first time during the Philippine-American War. So this is, I guess this is around 1899, 1900. And then several years later, you know, they're recruited by, you know, basically the same nationality, but now, you know, we're now colonial subjects and, and transported uh, to the U.S. Um, so, uh, but, so you wrote Bone Talk and um, it got these prizes. It's, it, it's been around longer, so it's more famous. It's gotten more critical acclaim. Uh, of course, Wild Song is still getting started. And yet, um, in one of your recent interviews, you you did say that Wild Song to you is your most important book. Uh, why did you say that? I feel its importance. Like I feel like, you know, one of the things that I discovered when I started to research the story of the World Fair was that there are no, there's no record. There are very few records of the the Filipinos who were taken to the fair. You don't hear their voices. If you, you even if you read the newspapers uh, of the time, the newspapers distorted the story. There were a lot of lies said about the Igorots. They were constantly um, denigrated in the newspapers, um, and I feel deeply. As a Filipino, I, one of the things I feel deeply is that colonial uh, mentality that we have all grown up with. That uh, the way you know, when I when I was a kid, I used to look up to America, and I wish, used to wish if only life had been different, and I was born an American with blonde hair and you know a nice nose. Um, I used I, I saw it in my parents that that kind of. Uh, self, kind of a Filipino self-hatred. Nah, you don't like the way you look. You, you find your skin too dark. Everything you do is uh, not good enough. We used to go to the PX goods places and buy American toys, American goods, American uh, appliances. The US so basis, you know, with... people would go to Clark and buy you know. Yeah, we used that was like our outing, and we loved it. And we uh, would come home with Fisher Price toys. You know, it's like, and growing up with that, I took it for granted. But then when I went, when I lived abroad, and I had to defend and represent and um, show, uh, you know, you're you, you're always called upon to be a better you, because you are the only Filipino in the room, <laughs> you know. And um, I started comparing, you know, seeing yourself in comparison to other to other people, I don't want to say races, other heritages, um, you realize, hey, uh, I compare well. You know, I'm I'm sometimes better than them. You know, I'm smarter than them. I'm more creative. I do I I can I can talk I can talk in a room and everyone will listen. And I began to kind of revise that uh, identity that I'd grown up with with my parents of um, thinking that what is American is better. And I began to ask myself why 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 were we like that? You know, why Why do we feel so inferior, uh, even physically inferior? So I it, I felt it really, really deeply. And writing Wild Song uh, opened my eyes to all kinds of things. It felt like this: the setting of the World Fair was the root of so many things that I experienced as a child. Like, for example, my mom had a very aquiline nose. She had a really pointy nose. And everyone would say, "Tignan mo yung si, si, si Cynthia, may matangos ang ilong." Our generation so ashamed of our noses. What's going on? And then I researched the World Fair, 
so the, the World Fair was set up by anthropologists. Anthropology was at the heart of the World Fair. Anthropology was a new science at the time, maybe 20 years old palam. So it hadn't, it hadn't really found its feet and it wasn't taken seriously by the scientific world. So a lot of people who practiced it were hobbyists, you know, and, uh, and it was deeply, deeply ingrained with a, 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 um, a pseudoscience called eugenics. Uh, eugenics is, uh, had had the idea that white uh, white races were superior to uh, races of color. Ma the eugenics mentality said that it was because the brains of white people were bigger, the, all the measurements were superior. You know, literally, the measurements of your physical self was of a white person were superior to that of a person of color. So what they did at the World Fair to those Filipinos who went there, um, there were about 2,000 Filipinos there, nine tribes, uh, Visayans, Bagobos, Mangyans, Negritos. Uh, they were called Negritos, but actually the people who went there were Aitas um, and uh, Igorots, of course. And the Igorots represented three different peoples from the Cordilleras. And what they did to them was they measured them. They measured them using a science called anthropometry. Anthropometry is still used today. It's the, the you measure bits and the whole body, you know, the distance between your two eyes, the distance of your ears from your eyes, the size of your head, and the width of your nose. They actually had special calipers to measure the width of the nose. And the width of the nose was a special way of showing how inferior a person was to the point that when eugenics took its most extreme um, model, which was the, the Holocaust in World War II, uh, Nazis went around measuring the widths of the noses of Jews to show how inferior they are. And during the American colonial era, I imagine how many anthropologists went to the Philippines and measured the entire populations of people, measured their nose and, sa and said, uh, sungat, uh, inferior, you know, and those were the, gra the, the, the grandparents of our parents. I had no idea about eugenics until I studied the World Fair. So, uh, so this is why I think it's really important because it's like, it shines a light on something that has been hidden. It's been hidden because Americans don't really like to highlight the glory of the World Fair and Filipinos like to hide it because they're ashamed of what happened there. And to write it, it meant that I had to go to work through that shame and figure out how do I tell this story without being ashamed of it and showing that these people had agency and they were not culpable for what happened to them. Well, you know, uh, of course, um, Filipinos have a problem with history, diba? So, uh, you know, it's either we we haven't been taught it well, or we're not interested, and you know, and it's a huge disadvantage for for any people not not to be interested or not to know much about their history. Um, your these books, no, um, uh, Bone Talk which sheds light on the Philippine-American War, and then Itong Wild Song, which is not just about the St. Louis World Fair, but also about American colonialism and you know, not this, these, you know, the practices of, uh, of anthropologists in those days, eugenics, uh, et cetera. No, so uh, these are works of fiction, but at the same time, um, it, it highlights 
um, like hidden parts of, of history. You know? My question is, as a novelist, uh, what kind of obligation do you feel to make the history in the novels accurate? But as a writer, I know that you did research, um, and as you said, you you know you 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 were, you knew about this for years before you actually wrote about it. And you did you did the, you did a lot of reading. You read William Henry Scott and Albert Jenks, and you know all you know the luminaries in the field. Um, did you feel you had to do that kind of research to 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 write this? Couldn't you just make things up? I could make it up, and a lot of writers who have historical settings just make it up and get go ahead with it. But you know. Nobody has written a, a, a fictionalized account of that time yet. And it's it's so important. As a, child, as a writer for young people, I always have to think of the young person. I think about how the words that I use, about what do they know, because a young person has no hindsight. They have no experience. So everything I do has to be contextualized properly. You know, as, as that, so I'm in that kind of practice. Um, and I know that Wild Song is a, a book that is readable by an adult. It's not really a children's book. Um, it's a young adult book. Um, but I felt the how important it was because I am a children's writer. I thought about what would it be like to be someone from the Cordillera reading this from the first time, for the first time. And I am not from the Cordillera. So at the time that I was writing it, all of these arguments about own voices, hashtag own voices, um, about do you have the right to write the book that you are writing now? And there were even authors withdrawing their books because they had a character that was from another race and they wanted, and they had misrepresented that race. So they withdrew the books, there were publishers withdrawing. I mean, it was a very volatile time. So the, that question was in my mind, like, uh, am I the right person to write this? And the way I looked at it was, yes, I am the right person to write this because this is my story. Through, the his, through history, uh, Filipinos, from the lowlands have rejected the Cordillerans as not like them. And that those scenes at the World Fair where they are being made to perform their culture, and in, on one side being asked to forget who they were, and on the other to perform a version of their culture that was accessible to the Americans. And that's exactly what we have been doing all these years. This is the history of the Philippines. This is us. This is us going to the PX goods store. This is us wanting to have a, a sharper nose. So, yes, I thought, this is my story. And then how do I write it so that the, the, the Igorot child will not feel um, harmed by it? Those things I thought about because it was so important not to do harm. Also, we will be reading this history for the first time and researching it. So I wanted it to be as accurate as possible. It was not hard. Not it was not hard to be accurate. It it is. I think it is to my best knowledge as accurate as it can be. I even counted the days. You know, even calc the calculations of the journey. The journey it took. And, you know, when people write about that history, they don't look at the point of view of the Igorot. Uh, they don't, the uh, manifest, the ship manifests. Uh, the, when they got on board, they took a list of the names of all the all the Igorots who got on board. And then they took another manifest. When they left the, the ship, there was another list of names. And the names were different. And when you read Albert Jenks, who wrote the Bontok Igorot, um, he talks about how names were so important in that culture. Names carried this the the 
the blessings and the curses of the spirits. And so if, for example, you get ill or you travel to another place and you travel away from where the spirit that holds your name lives, you will change your name because you protect yourself by taking the name of a stronger spirit. So names were really, really important. And the fact that they changed their names on the ship, what happened on board the ship that made them change their names? Um, there was a uh, a uh, an, uh, a researcher named Anthony Buangan, and he was one of the my key sources because he was not a, a an academic; he was just a, a, a descendant. And one day he was traveling around America, and he came to the the um, St. Louis and went to the museum to see an exhibition. And there on the wall was a giant photograph of his ancestor Tugmena. Uh, he realized how little he knew. He knew. All the people would talk about it at home, but he hadn't researched it. So he was the one who went and obtained the manifests from the different uh, places and saw the disparity in the names. Mm. Um, uh, and I, I contacted Anthony Bowangan and had long con a long conversation with him about it. And he's still, he's, he's elderly now, but he's still really, really passionate about it. Wow. Yeah, well, uh, you certainly humanized, uh, you know, these nameless, faceless people from history. I want to ask you now, uh, why why young adult fiction? Um, and and, and is this is this is this going to be your genre? I mean, throughout your career, you think? Well, all I've ever wanted since I was a kid was to write for young people, for young children. I I I have a I love children, so it's it's there's there's the love for children. There's also, uh, as a journalist, one of the things that really turned me on about journalism was the limitations that you are confronted with. So, you know, in my time, when we were still using column inches, you had to put all of your important facts in the top bit of the column because you knew that it might be snipped off at the end when it's being laid out. And that was a really interesting challenge. And writing for children has really special, really interesting challenges. Uh, your vocabulary, how to make it, uh, how to how to uh, communicate really deep ideas to someone who has a very limited experience. I find that really fun and challenging. I I find it really interesting. So this is this is where I want to be. One of my my greatest experiences as the father was reading some of the books that my son got into. I mean, he he actually introduced books to me rather than the other way around. Because when we when he got really into books, he you know he started finding uh, out about other books on his own, and uh, you know through his friends as well. Or he would like get into a particular author, and I would I would read some of the same books, and it was just a great experience just being able to talk about the same books with him as he was as he was growing up. It's just the most wonderful thing to have read the same thing and you're, you can have an argument, you can have, you know, you're talking about something and it's important. You know, I, I think that's, that's great. You're a good dad. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, you know, uh, before you were a writer uh, or a novelist or a published novelist, you were a journalist and you were a good journalist. Uh, and... Um, <laughs> I remember uh, you were a journalist not for a very long time, no, just in the 1980s, uh, I think, right, uh, from 84 to 89 or so. And um, but those were some of the uh, heyday years of um, of Philippine journalism, no. Um, 
you you were a journalist uh, in the so-called mosquito press, diba? Uh, uh, there was the mainstream press, which was mostly you know government controlled or uh, owned by um, allies of of uh, Marcos uh, and the government. Um, and then there was the press, the newspapers, magazines, uh, mostly. No, uh, of course, there was no internet then, and a TV and radio. Uh, it's mostly controlled by by the government, uh, uh, especially uh, especially in in the early eighties. Uh, so the Mosquito Press is where a lot of the critical voices were, and that's where you ended up. No, medyo ka generation tayo. No, but I was a teacher, and I was. Um, I was a very critical. I was very critical of the situation, uh, and I would get a lot of my information from Mr. and Ms. from you know, We Forum, uh, Malaya, uh, Veritas. Uh, I mean, there was a whole slew of a so-called uh, mosquito press. No, I'm a, I've been a journalist now for more than thirty years, and um, and we know we know how journalists these days are are being. Uh, demonized, you know, and there are people who say, oh, we don't need journalism because we have Facebook or, you know, I get my news from TikTok now. And But uh, when you were starting out as a young journalist in the 80s, journalists were heroes. What was that like uh, being a journalist in the Philippines in the 1980s, starting in 84? This is right after the Nino Aquino assassination in, 90, in 1983, which kind of unleashed all of this pent up anger and, and energy and it led to protests and uh, and and then the explosion of this so-called mosquito press that employed a lot of you know idealistic uh, young people uh, like yourself at that time so what what was that like well in 84 I was a new graduate from Ateneo I had I did I did communication arts and that was because I didn't know what I really wanted to do um and the um, one my my uh, my final paper was called uh, uh, Truth in Journalism, something like that, and I did that with my my two best friends, um, one of whom was Frankie Joaquin, uh, the other one was Vicky Suba, who eventually became an actress. Um, and Frankie and I uh, interviewed um, Leti Jimenez Magsano, her daughter Carol was. A, in school at the time. So we said, Kara, can we interview your mother? She's a famous journalist. She'll let you interview her. So we interviewed her and then we had a really nice chat. Um, I don't know if you've ever met Leti Magsano. She was smoking like a, she was like a train engine smoking away. And she had this really deep voice. She had this kind of voice. And then she, and then at the end of our interview, she said, hey, I like you girls. Uh, when you graduate, you come and find me, uh, come to my office. So the day after graduation, Frankie and I went to her office and she gave us a job on the spot as her staff reporter. She already had uh, Fez Zamora, who's another uh, another important name from that era. And uh, our first job, Frankie and I, on the, on the, as, as reporters was, Letty said, Candy, you cover the KBL, which was the Kilusang Bat, uh, Kilusang Bagong Lipunan, the party of Ferdinand Marcos, and Frankie covered the opposition. The opposition, but we were we were like really we were really young and we were we were nervous. We'd never had a job before. We were kids. We were really and you know uh, I think people in the Philippines are a lot younger than um, 
than 20 year olds here in this this country have noticed because I was really, really innocent and so young and I did not know what I was doing. I was a, a really good writer, I think at the time, but it was all bullshit. <laughs> it was all like, it was nice writing without any context or knowledge. And I was learning on the job. And I have to say, uh, most of the time that I was a journalist in those early years, which were the important years, because 1984, 1985, 1986, then the revolution, you know, uh, I, I really felt like I didn't know what was going on. And people would tell you things and you didn't know, you didn't know what to believe. It was very hard to, and it wasn't like you had the internet. You couldn't just Google something. You had to kind of mm -hmm. be on the spot, understand, ask the right questions, even though you didn't get what was going on, and then research it later. And when you research, you were like going through piles and piles of news. It was it was really tough. Um, and I felt like a fish out of water. It was really, really difficult. I felt like I wasn't a good writer. So I, I just tried to write beautiful lead paragraphs. And I, it was really, really challenging for me. Um, and it was only years later that I began to understand what our role was, what we were doing, who those people were, and a lot of the contexts. Because when you're on the ground, it's, it's really hard to know what's going on, even in the midst of the revolution. I remember um, I, I ran out of film in the... Uh, at the very beginning of the people power and i was begging all the all the photographers bullet bullet give me some some uh, some film no i need it there's a there's a yeah. war going on That's bullet marquez nobody right? will give me bullet marquez yeah. nobody bullet will give me you know give me any film as begging everybody so i have no photos <laughs> and i was a, an avid photographer at the time um and i didn't understand you know what did it mean when those when those, I was there when the tanks came down to Green Hills and I was standing in front of the tank and I thought, okay, this is stupid. I'm going to move. I'm going to step aside. I'm not going to be in front of this tank. But I was at the time standing next to Mandy Navasera, who's a, another photographer from that era. And she goes, no, don't step aside. And I said, no, I don't want to be with you. And, you know, she stood there and she leaned against the tank and tried to push it away while praying the rosary. Hey, hey Mary, full of grace. It was really funny and it was really scary at the same time. And there's a famous photograph from that era of Mandy Navasera right there under the tank, pushing, crying and pushing the tank. And if I had stayed there, I would have been in that famous photograph, but I was on the <laughs> side, terrified, terrified of what was going on. And all those big guns and um, the anger, there was anger. Um, and then later on, I found myself in, in um, Malacanang. Um, and uh, I thought this is a great, you know, I'm, I'm a, at the right place at the right time. You know how journalists say, you've got to be at the right place at the right time. And it was terrifying. People were destroying everything. People were running around. Uh, people were getting hurt and I just moved away. And I remember, I was starving, I bought a balut and I sat on top of the, the Jones Bridge and ate the balut in the midst of the crowds running back and forth and uh, thinking, what does it all mean? What is going to happen next? Um, and the, 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 our, my anchor at the time was Leti Magsano could tell me what it meant. <laughs> you know, I'd go home and say, this happened, this happened, this happened. Well, that's because this is what that means. And this is, and you know that. And she knew everybody, knew everybody's names, knew what it meant and gave, gave me context. So, you know, being a journalist at the time, it sounds really glamorous. And, um, and I think people, I, I, the, the kids would probably love it if I could come up with really glamorous stories of how I fought this and I stood up to that. But actually, it was a really scary and um, I felt really fragile and 
incompetent. Like I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I didn't know how to be a, a journalist for that for that time. Um, mm -hmm. It was fine. <laughs> yeah, but but at the same time, I mean, no matter how you know innocent you felt you were and how young you, all of many of you were. Uh, napaka influential no ng uh, press noon it was it, it was a it could even be like one of the deciding factors in in what happened no on EDSA and in the country uh as a whole no kasi uh, nearly everyone got their information from from the press of course uh, because yeah, there was no and, internet and but you know we're living in an age when there's um so many distractions so so much competing for our attention right? much of it on screens how how can we encourage young people to to read again or just to read uh in this kind of environment oh well that's the that's the perennial question isn't it i think uh, for me as an author the uh, what i've got to do is to be in the spaces where they spend time so um i have left facebook because i feel that facebook although it had been told about the harm it was doing to countries like ours by not controlling their algorithm, and in Myanmar especially, uh, I felt that uh, that was a, a cardinal sin. So I left Facebook and I joined Instagram. And I feel that um, to encourage young people to read, you've got to be in the spaces where they are so that you can communicate with them. And um, so I had to have a really good look at my Instagram profile and uh, I, I think about how do I reach the people who aren't following me right now who should be who would be fascinated by a book like this so I'm not interested in attracting every child every reader everybody I'm just interested in the people who this kind of uh, story would be important to so I've I, I do a lot of video on my Instagram and I, I try to add value and by adding value, like I did a video about that whole uh, flat nose, the, the eugenic story on my Instagram that had a lot of traffic and I got a lot of new people following me. <laughs> so if I keep creating value and telling stories, short one minute stories that will get them interested, maybe they will come and read my books, but it's not guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Why is reading books for pleasure important? I grew up in Cubao and my, my parents were not well off and there was always the threat. I was like one of those kids who had to wait in the school office while my father raced around town borrowing money so that he could pay the tuition fee like that. Then I can take the exam. That was the that was how precarious. And I think a lot of Filipinos have that precarious precarity in their financial situation. So I grew up with that. But reading books was a way, was a it was not an escape, but it was like a, it was like a bridge to um, a world where I could I could be whoever I wanted to be. It, it it made me it made me a better person, and I think that I think that it it continues to do so because the book the quality of uh, books that are coming out now, especially for young people, is really astonishing, um, and undiscovered by a lot of people. So so I think in, in the Philippines, amazing books are coming out. So that's really exciting. Um, and I, I think that reading can, can still be a way in, but scientists have discovered that reading improves uh, people's lives. And they found that the people who read for pleasure did better in their adult life than the people 
who didn't. The ones who didn't, who had parents who were professionals, who were academics, didn't do as well as people who read for pleasure. And pleasure meant things like crime novels, horror, everything. And so there's a scientific basis for reading for pleasure. Um, but for me, it was a personal thing. It freed me from my daily Kubao existence. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's a common experience. You know, it's an escape from whatever you're used to. And you can imagine so many other things in life and in the world. So uh, I want to thank you. I don't even want to say I read books. I consume books through audio. You know, while I'm driving, and the thing is, you know, you're busy, but you have to fit it in somehow. So uh, I, I just listen in the car very often. Um, so, and of course, there's there's ebooks where you know you can instantly look up, you know, a word you don't know. <laughs> so, uh, and it's it's lighter. So, I mean, there are many ways now of of reading or consuming books. So, uh, that's the advantage, the man of of being in, you know, in the age of screens because it gives us more options in terms of our, our relationship with books. Yeah, I'm a big fan of e-books. E it's really amazing. I, I read e-books all the time. I can read it on the, on the train, on the bus. I can read all the time. I used to carry all my favorite books in my backpack everywhere I went and it gave me back problems. <laughs> so, so now I can just have my little phone. It's on my phone. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I did that for years uh, as well. But um, I decided, since I do so many other things on screens, I decided I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to real books. To you know, and um, I, so I don't mind I don't mind the the extra weight. <laughs> it's 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 I I enjoy the I appreciate the books a lot a lot more. Um, yeah, and like your book, you know, I I didn't read it on a screen. I I read the real thing. Um, yeah. Thank I, you. I, by the way. Thank you yeah, for your wonderful review. I loved your review. <laughs> yeah, thank you, thank you. Well, I enjoyed, I enjoyed the book. Uh, thank you for for all that you're doing for young people, uh, including my son, who was one of your readers when he was about nine or ten years old. Um, and uh, congratulations on all your uh, great work. Mabuhay ka, Candy Gourlay, critically acclaimed writer and the author of the new novel, Wild Song. Salamat din, and thank you to everyone who listened. Hi, I'm Howie Severino. Check out the Howie Severino Podcast, an original for GMA News and Public Affairs. New episodes will stream every Thursday. Listen for free on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other platforms.